in the book, we talk about flexible working as our nemesis, which is probably a bit brutal. It's embarrassing that our collective imagination has only been able to tweak the nine to five working day at the edges since it was invented 200 years ago. It's taking that traditional nine to five, five day a week structure, and it's just tweaking it. It's not actually making a fundamental difference to society. Life expectancy has changed. When the nine to five, Monday to Friday, eight hour day construct was conceived, we were expected to live 40 years. Half of the children born today will live to 104. Burning out early is painful and hard to recover from. So we need to pace ourselves. And I think a lot of that can be helped with preserving our well-being as best we can. In the book, we specifically talk about flexible working, not working in three ways. So firstly... Quick question. When did you discover that you're a leader? that your actions matter to those that look up to you. You may be an entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur, innovating to change the world, or a CEO navigating a crisis, or a parent returning to work and learning to lead your career, your team, your children. There are many faces of leadership, and this is the podcast to explore them all. Welcome to Anatomy of a Leader with me, Maria Vorostovsky. I'm a headhunter and founder of HVO Search, where I help ambitious leaders hire their executive teams. My job today on this show is to help you discover your superpowers, to help you avoid making some of the same mistakes, and to remind you that even if you do, perfection doesn't and shouldn't exist. Thank you so much for listening and please do subscribe and follow this podcast because it really helps others to discover these incredible stories. This show will challenge the way you think and may even change your life. Lizzie, Alex, thank you so much for coming on Anatomy of a Leader. So good to have you here. Thank you for having us. Yes, amazing. I've read and devoured your book, read it cover to cover, literally like been like earmarking pages. I never do that, like writing notes. You scribbled in there. I've scribbled, yes. I bought a second book just to make sure that I have a copy signed by you because I just think the work that you're doing is amazing. And just as a reader and, you know, picking up your book, I don't know, had just this sort of, I don't know, almost like you're reading a fantasy novel in a good way and it just made me feel hopeful it's just like a beacon of hope your book and all the issues that you're talking about you know my clients the industries are all grappling with it especially post-pandemic and I think you offer this incredible I'd like to say new it's not necessarily new I think it's something that we all deeply inside of us desire but just haven't figured out how to make it happen and I think what you're doing with Hoxby is actually showing the world that it is possible it works and like come on board jump on this bandwagon let's change the world so first of all thank you so much for writing this book and um yeah, I suppose, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it is like, I love, I love good stats, you know, good statistics, <laughs> and there's plenty of those. I think there are 600 mm. yeah, a lot of references. references in the book. Yeah, yeah so. so I started writing some of them down. And I'm like, actually, no, I'm going to have to keep the book because I need to like go back and refer to it. And one of the things you mentioned is just the sheer number of people who are very unfulfilled with their work. I think it's 87% who are not fulfilled in their jobs, which is a huge majority of people. So in which way the world of work is currently broken? Mm. Many ways. I think it's broken in, in lots of ways, um, but it mainly is valuing um, presence over freedom to choose. So the book is called Work Style. It's a word that Alex and I made up in the pub um, where all the best, and it's got a hand gesture. Um, And essentially it's about the freedom to choose. And we believe that in the digital age, um, we should be working in a fundamentally different way. That means we can all be autonomous and that we can individualize work. So we can each work in the way that is best for us as individuals. The working world wasn't broken um, when the nine to five day was invented 200 years ago. You know, that was great progress from Sir Robert Owen. Um, 
But now we think he'd be turning in his grave to know people are still working in that way. When really the world has moved on. So why hasn't the way we work moved on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were a manufacturing economy back then. Uh, The lion's share of what people did for work was uh, in factories making things. And uh, we are now, I mean, that that now accounts for about 10% of work. Most of what we do now is is knowledge base is, is, is we're in a service industry and you know a lot of that is um, enabled by technology and um, we moved from factories to offices but we now live in a digital age where we can connect with people around the world anywhere and at any time um, but we're still holding on to a mindset of Monday to Friday nine to five as being the way that work gets done and actually we think that's holding us back now because it's no longer the case that work has to be done in that way Mm. Um, and that's we think the fundamental reason why we have a problem with fulfillment because mostly people are still having to fit their lives around their work rather than being able to fit their work around their life which technology can now enable and I think there's a growing frustration about the fact that for the most part work is still getting in the way even though we know through the technologies and the the things that we experience outside of work that it doesn't have to be that way work just needs to catch up with with technology Mm. and our way of thinking and living and since we're talking about leadership on here um, we feel strongly that it's up to leaders to make that change that it's people at the top of organisations in the C-suite, HR leaders, to understand that not only should the world be working this way, but it can be a source of competitive advantage. You know, this is the future of work. People who move to this quickly will attract the best talent at a time when there are labour market shortages in the UK. Those individuals will be more productive their well-being will be improved and it has benefits for society. So really, I think there's an obligation on leaders to start to engage in a conversation about autonomous working rather than any of the other kind of progressive kinds of working um, that actually we feel aren't creating change fast enough. Mm. Talking about the change has to come from the top, about leaders having to really radically change the way things are being done in order to create much more productive Um, companies. I've been having various private conversations with HR directors and talking about re-engagement of talent, post-pandemic, hybrid working. I've had various conversations with uh, people around flexible working. What are your thoughts on that? Um, Well, in the book, we talk about flexible working as our nemesis. Um, which is probably a bit brutal. We believe in positive progress, of course we do. But the reality is that we think it's kind of embarrassing that our collective imagination has only been able to tweak the nine to five working day at the edges since it was invented 200 years ago. And essentially that's what flexible working, hybrid working, the four day work week is. It's taking that traditional nine to five, five day a week structure and it's just tweaking it. Um, but it's not actually making a fundamental difference to society. And I think a lot of businesses and leaders feel they can say, well, we're doing flexible working, we're doing hybrid working. It's not enough and it's not inclusive enough and it's not creating enough change. And in the book, we specifically talk about um, flexible working, not working in three ways. So firstly, um, it's based on an industrial age system. It needs that industrial age system to exist. Um, and it kind of positively perpetuates that challenge of the industrial age system, even though it's wrong for our digital age. The second thing is it creates in-group, out-group dynamics. So the fact is the prevailing way to work is still nine to five, five days a week. And so anyone who works differently from that is seen as kind of special or different and is therefore putting kind of an an outgroup. And I know that from when I used to work part-time, that I always felt like I missed the most important things in the office. And and I don't necessarily mean the big business news. Sometimes it was Eurovision sweepstake or Mm. the final of the table football competition. The social things, the things that make you feel truly part of an organisation. And so people who work 
part-time aren't necessarily able to do that. And then the third thing is that it's just not creating change fast enough. And I think we talk in the book about a number of excluded groups and, and the gaps between the number of people who want to work and the people who do. But I think the parents' example is a really good one of that. 86% of parents want to work flexibly, but only 49% do. So clearly, flexible working isn't working in that it's not creating change for those in that gap between those two statistics who want to work flexibly, but can't. So we feel that we need to fundamentally overhaul the way that work is done in order to be fit for the digital era that we live in. And the principle of that overhaul is about organisations not mandating when and where people work. So all of those systems are about retaining organisational control rather than enabling individual choice. And that's the big transition that needs to happen, which requires a lot of trust and faith in humanity um, to give people that, um, that freedom, that autonomy to decide for themselves. But for as long as organisations are trying to mandate when and where people work, they will, they will never be able to offer the level of individuality that is necessary now and possible now and what people are actually craving. Mm. And some groups are, will fundamentally be excluded as a result of that. Um, you know, we've got an ageing population. Um, we've got an issue in society that we can't look after that ageing population. People have to go on working for longer and organisations will need older workers to re-engage with work, to simply have enough people to do the jobs they need. But that things like that require a fundamental hmm. reshaping of work. I mean, what you're talking about is a mindset shift completely in terms of switching from that idea that it's not the companies or the leaders setting, you know, it's like you will work in this way or that sort of supervisor model. It's about accepting that the individual has more control, not over in how they do the work, but the kind of work that they do. And I think a lot of companies are scared of taking away that control, that power. How do we change that mindset? I know that the employees want it. We know that. I mean, the statistics are completely clear on that. But what can we do to change that? Apart from you talking I mean, about it and uh, like making a big splash about it. I think sometimes we yeah. forget, you know, we, we, we forget that it's people that are in leadership positions and it's people who have the power to shape how a company treats its people. And I think the shift we're talking about here is about creating the conditions for autonomy. So as an organisation, that's less about trying to control and coordinate and more about how do we liberate in the best possible way? How do we relinquish control but create the conditions for people to succeed in their own way and with autonomy? And that is a huge shift psychologically from being able to see someone, so presence-based, um, to understand if they're working and what they're working on, to simply trusting that they're doing it and being more output-based in terms of how we appraise someone's contribution, looking at what they deliver and the outcome of that work more than how many hours they've been working, whether they were here beyond six o'clock or before 8am, and trying to overcome some of those age-old problems actually that that we have in the office place that are causing this uh this dissatisfaction with traditional work um which is it's challenging but this is where the mindset shift needs to happen enabling individuals to pursue autonomy and then culture from that comes from inside it's about it's a belief and an alignment belief if if a person feels that they're connected to what that organization is aiming for and they're connected to each other in the pursuit of that goal then that will build culture far more than physical proximity and what's written on the walls um and in fact the way we think about values has to be much deeper than simply some single words put on the walls, but actually things that are going to unite people to work to their own work styles, which means them not being in the same place at the same time. 
Mm. So things that unite people beyond geographical boundaries, a, a sense of purpose. And when we talk about um, how we can help organisations to transition to more autonomous ways of working, having an authentic sense of purpose and a, and a, a meaningful impact agenda are key to enabling that transition to happen because that is what bonds people and creates a sense of culture far, far stronger and far deeper than being present in a mm. room together. I mean, by way of an example, I think it's 50% of people who work in traditional office environments feel lonely or, or experience loneliness. So being together in the same place doesn't necessarily mean bonding and forming culture. Mm. Um, we can be in the same room but not talk to people all day and that's do you think it's lazy of companies to just expect the fact that you're physically present it means that all of a sudden you have created that culture and created that sense of connection i think it's i think it i think that is a really big element and i think we're seeing it as we head into a kind of recessionary environment i think that organizations are saying come back to the office where we can see you so we know you're working because we're feeling nervous, which is exactly the wrong thing to be doing. You know, actually, at a time like this, we should be giving people more autonomy and judging them on their output because if they're connected to the overall vision, they will be dedicated to de delivering a great output. Um, and and I, I think that that is, that is a mindset shift. You know, there are, there are three big things that we always talk about that underpin work style working and autonomous working the first is digital first rather than physical first and for people who've worked in a traditional workplace that is a complete mindset shift mm -hmm. but it's also really important even if you only have one person working remotely you're a remote dispersed team that person shouldn't feel left out because they're not in the office and actually increasingly lots of people are in the office on their headphones with their headphones in on zoom calls um, so at Hoxby, you know, Slack is our office. We don't have an office. Um, Google Meet is our meeting room. The water cooler is a digital channel. I love that, by the way, oh, the water cooler channel. Like, I always wow. wanted to talk to you about that. It well. is yeah. full of cats and dogs and babies and yeah. gifts and lots of fun stuff. But the amazing thing is you go to the water cooler when it suits you, mm -hmm. not when someone comes by your desk just when you're in the middle of flow. So there's still a place for these things. It's just having the digital mindset to overlay how that connection should happen. So digital first is the first one. The second one is asynchronous working. So working at a time that it suits you rather than a time when everyone else is working. Um, and that's really important because actually with technology now and collaborative tools like Google Suite, you can work whenever it suits you. You don't have to be working at the same time and it can be a far more productive way to work to be able to, as you know, there's a lot in the book about it, to be able to choose your optimal environment, the times of day that suit you according to your personal circadian rhythm, to do deep work, shallow work, to not be working. I fold the laundry in the middle of the afternoon often to re-energize myself. It's embarrassing, really, but... Um. I do the same. I absolutely <laughs> that is not. I, I, I think there's but, a good, good reason for it, but... Um, well, yeah. I, there, there's a geek box in the book about... Mm -hmm. um, you know, your neural pathway, pathways and allowing you to think about things in your subconscious. Um, so that genuinely is a thing to do, um, to take a break, do something a bit mindless and allow things to recalibrate. And then you'll come back refreshed and with a new sense of perspective. Um, so that's the second thing. And then the third thing is about trust-based working, which Alex has talked about, but essentially work style working only works when it's underpinned by trust. And you can't create a trust-based culture by saying, we're a trust-based culture. Mm -hmm. It has to be role modeled by leaders. It has to be recognized. It has to be rewarded. And it's something that we feel extremely passionate about. You know, um, when I was going through chemotherapy and I was working from the chemo chair, I didn't want to be judged on where I was. I wanted to be judged on what I was delivering. Didn't mean I wasn't really passionate about my career. Mm. So. Mm. I think also to, to go back to your point about is it laziness, I think, I don't think it's lazy per se. I think it's more comfortable. I think we forget that we've been conditioned over two centuries to believe we have to be together in the same room between the hours of nine and five, Monday to Friday. We've only been doing, I mean, we've been doing work style for eight years. 
Um, but we realised that you know the book has only just launched is a relatively new concept for people. So we're just at the start of a learning journey that if we stay in the comfort zone of what we know, we'll never explore. But at some point, people will explore it. We will people will catch up to this idea of autonomous work because it's better for well-being, it's better for productivity, it's better for society. And in a hundred or two hundred years' time, people will look back and hopefully they'll say, wow, they really took that opportunity <laughs> post-pandemic mm-hmm. to change ways of working. Mm-hmm. I thought they were going to say, they'll look back and think, that was a book that started. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they might say that as They were well. so ahead of <laughs> their time. <laughs> I guess yeah. what they will see in reality is, gosh, some companies really struggled with that. Mm-hmm. And who knows what will happen to them. But I think mm. that there is a danger to sticking to what you know um you'll get what you always got and your evolution will be slower well and i think post-pandemic what's been really interesting is that even the naysayers the people who used to say to us because you know we've been doing this for eight years five years pre-pandemic when people thought we were a bit strange Mm. um and people used to say to us well that won't work with my job you know, lots of people said that, well, in my industry or my job or whatever. Um, but post-pandemic, people get it. People get that this can be done. And actually, people had a good time, even in the miserable awfulness of a global pandemic, working in autonomous ways. Um, and not everyone did, but I think it opened a lot of people's eyes to the fact that it can be done this way. And now we're in this situation where we've got labour market shortages, we've got businesses that are competing for talent. And so I think there is more power for the people that actually, if you're looking to move where you work, you will go somewhere that gives you the autonomy to work how you choose. And we've heard that, you know, some of the clients that we consult with for the move to autonomous working, the reason is because of retention and attracting talent, because people are actually prioritising life and there's more power to the individual at the moment. Well, what you're saying is that when people are prioritizing themselves, their health, their life, then the things that they do decide to work on and the companies that they decide to work with, then that's like a match made in heaven because you, through the time that you're actually there, you're much more useful, productive and just a generally happier person, which means yep. that you can continue doing that for longer periods of time. So actually overall, that has this, you know, it's a virtual cycle that just creates better and better societies, companies, people. And what I think we have all fallen into, and I'll talk about my own experience as well, is this old way of working. It's like the longer I sit here, the yeah. more I'll be able to get done. But actually in the reality, you're not. You're just sitting there, scrolling away, looking at things, opening a hundred tabs, and actually not yeah. getting your work done. Yeah, I think, and I think it's so important. You know, for Alex and I, this started out as a big experiment. You know, from that conversation in the pub, we wanted to put it into practice to test it, and we looked around and saw no one working in a truly autonomous way, and so that's why we started Hoxby. But what we found is that. Actually, in the book, we include Workstyle stories, so individual people for whom Workstyle has been transformational. But what's really interesting is it's not just those people who were previously excluded and otherwise wouldn't be able to work. And there are plenty of those. This is bringing people into the workforce who otherwise wouldn't be able to work but want to. It's also about people just wanting to work differently and better and in a way that's better for their health and better for their productivity and I think it's also a bit about self-management it's about Mm. people understanding themselves better there are lots of ways in which now I think we are more accountable to ourselves we don't expect to have a job for life and for the organization to do stuff for us we expect to be accountable for our own learning well-being productivity and so for us I think there's a tension there between the organizations that don't give individuals the freedom to do that even though there's an appetite and a desire to do good work in a way that suits people. Talking about my own experience of starting my own company, and I see that a lot with female 
entrepreneurs who leave the workforce because they simply cannot see how they can remain in there and, you know, have a family, have uh, maybe pursue different interests because you are having to work in a particular way. But going back to your point about how, because we have lived in this for like 200 years and that's what we got used to, even when I had when I started my own business, I was still operating in the same way. So even though I had this fantasies of, well, I can just, you know, go for a lunch with a friend in the middle of the day or at four o'clock or, you know, as you say, go to the hairdressers, you mm-hmm. know, like show your selfie when you're, you know, going to the hairdressers during like your work hours or go on holiday and take time off. And actually I wasn't able on the majority to implement that, even though I had complete control over my time. Why weren't yeah. you able to? Is that your well, own mindset? Well, this You're is entrenched. it. And yeah. I have been battling with this for mm. such a long time. Mm. I mean, it took me probably eight years of running a company to even say, you know what, on a Monday, I'm going to, I, it changes every every now and then, but on a Monday, say, I want to have my self-care. And instead of, you know, having meetings or emails, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to meditate. And until 12 o'clock, that's what I'm going to do. And then my week starts with this, like, you know, very energized way. And I did manage to do that for, for, for several, you know, weeks or sometimes it was even months and mentally it was better. And I was seeing the results of actually the time spent at the computer or on a call was so much better. I mean, I could get things done that would take me a day in like three hours or something like that. But it's very difficult to maintain that. And, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, as they say. And that is autonomy. And autonomy also comes with lots of different choices. Like, how do I actually, Mm. you know, spend my time? Like, where do I start? And, you know, the paradox of choice is like the more choice you have, the harder it is to then make that decision. And I think from an individual perspective, that's what I find very difficult to deal with. But from an organizational, from a leadership perspective of how do you implement that within the, the you know, the rest of the business, I think that's a huge challenge. So I'd love to get you all thoughts on that <laughs> yep it's a big one That's it's a big one <laughs> um, in terms of what you're talking about um so let's start with um work style autonomy comes with accountability um they go hand in glove when we talk about how an individual can have a work style the first thing they have to do is set it which requires conscious thought around okay what are the things in my life that i absolutely must do or absolutely want to do and start with those things schedule them in and then fit work around those things with an understanding of how important they are i think very often we place a huge amount of importance on our work and very little importance on all the stuff we have to do outside of work and actually that tension is what creates a huge amount of stress when all those things that are actually really important but aren't work and therefore not paid um, get left or put under tension because work gets in the way. So the first thing to do is put more value on those things. So understand the value of doing the laundry because actually it's a great mental rest that enables you to come back to a problem and solve it more easily. You know, place value on the time spent with your kids when they come home from school and before they go to bed. And understand that that may not be a financial value, but it has a value to your well-being, your state of mind, and ultimately your productivity as well. So that's a real shift of mindset away from, like you were saying before, the more I do, the more I'll succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not the case. We, it is more nuanced and we have to understand ourselves deeply to understand where we see value and also how we work best. But this act of setting your work style is the first step of making something that wasn't conscious choice, something that is conscious choice and that you're doing it for the benefit of your well-being, your work and for uh, broader society actually you're playing your part in bringing about change and by doing it so the first thing is set set your work style the second thing is project it once you've written it down thought it through planned it out tell people about it 
because if you don't tell people about it, they won't help you to uphold it. They'll continue to expect you to be available for calls, even though it's outside of your work style, for example. We don't recommend calls. That's synchronous behavior. <laughs> um, but uh, so the final thing is then, so having set and projected your work style, respecting it. And we always talk about how people are really good at respecting other people's work styles and not so great at respecting their own. Again, it comes back to understanding the value of your non-working time, but also putting boundaries in place for yourself that enable you to respect your own work style. And that, again, is something that you consciously have to do, but that we help with and organisations can help with by encouraging that to happen, setting uh, windows of time for availability, uh, by putting things in place like turning off notifications and cultural norms within organisations help hugely with this as well. But, but one of the other things that we recommend is having a, a buddy someone who can help you be accountable for staying true to your work style and be the one who gives you the polite reminder when you're breaking it. Uh, so that's also another element that's really important. But this is, a, this is a, a collective effort, and this is one of the reasons why we talk about it as a revolution, because it's not something that you can just do on your own. We all have to believe in this alternative future and start doing it together, which is where buddying really helps and, and really plays its part in bringing about change. I think it's also where language is really important because the reason we came up with the word work style was because we wanted a kind of a neutral term that people could use to say, you know, what's your work style? Um, partly because of a lot of the negative language around part-timer, shirking from home, flex pest. Um, but what's interesting is when we started to use it, people would use it back in the same conversation, which made us think, okay, there is a need for this. And actually, we've had feedback since the book launched that people have read it and they've said, this explains and puts a word around the thing that I've wanted. So what's new is the word work style. It's collectively working towards something. Um, and being able to be a part of that. Like you said, there are lots of constituent parts to this that aren't new. You know, we know we've got an aging population. We know we've lived through a time of great technological advancement. We know that the freelance independent workforce is growing. Um, those aren't new things, but they do create a platform for us to be able to work in a completely new way. Um, and so I think for us, when you can start having conversations, you know, when you're arranging calls, if you can start with people saying, what's your work style, rather than, can you do a call on a Monday morning? That changes the whole tone because suddenly you're not having to say, actually, I'm really sorry, I can't do that. But you're able to say, my work style is Monday afternoons, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays or whatever it is. And so it changes the whole tone of the relationship and it empowers people to be able to choose and set, project and respect their mm. own work styles mm. as well. I think what you said, Alex, earlier about prioritising or recognising the value of the work that you do outside of work. And by work, I mean, you know, folding laundry, you know, being with your kids or, you know, caring for somebody or just things that just make you feel happy in your life that actually give you energy. And I think there is definitely this cultural belief that those things are somehow not important and then yeah, don't feed yeah. into your working life. And this idea of the separation of like this work-life balance, which I've always struggled with, yeah. this concept. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, you have your work and what you have your life. And having my own business, I'm like, well, actually how does that make any sense anyway? Because, you know, my work is very social. I find that very difficult to separate. I can't remember who suggested it, but I remember it was the idea of put the things that you want to do, like things that you never get around to doing, but really, really enjoy first into your calendar. Mm, yeah. I didn't stick with it, I have to say, but for the time that I did do it, I was just a completely different person. Yes. I, I wonder if you're slightly in the dark side of autonomy, um, which we talk about in the book. Yes, I, I, <laughs> I completely. Have read about yes, this. for sure. I, I intellectually, I understand yeah. what it's yeah. supposed to yeah. be, 
But it's almost like I'm so stuck in the pattern that even though I'm trying to break it, it's very hard to get out of it. I think there are two things. So um, one is, like you say, the practical day-to-day steps that you can take to make the changes. And that is about set project and respect. And, and also, I should add that you need to keep resetting your work style. You know, when your kids start school, when you're partner is diagnosed with cancer, you know, you, there are times that you will have to regularly revisit your work style and change the way it works. But then I think the second thing is understanding the theory behind autonomy is really important. And we talk about this dark side of autonomy being around experienced responsibility. So you talk about working for yourself. And I think that is potentially where there's the greatest pitfall, because ultimately, you are, you feel such an acute sense of responsibility for your business that that sometimes means that where you've got autonomy, you can end up working all the time or a lot of the time. And boundary setting is even harder when you work for yourself because first you can work in theory whenever you want, but also you really acutely feel that it's on you to have that responsibility to make a success of the business. And so I think Understanding experience responsibility, and we go into a bit of detail about it in the book, is really important as a watch out. It's like a therapy session. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, you're making me feel really emotional because with my therapist, that's what my main thing that I'm working on is the sense of like hyper independence and Mm. responsibility, excessive responsibility taking. Yeah. Mm. It's not all on you. Yes. (laughs) And that's part of the work style thing. It's working Mm. together to create a revolution. It's Mm. it's all of us coming together to make this work. It's Mm. not down to any one of us. The thing I always think about is that, uh, this is tangential, but life expectancy has changed. When the nine to five, Monday to Friday, eight hour day construct was conceived, life expectancy was around about 40 years old. We were expected to live 40 years. What half of the children born today will live to 104. So we're living. We're playing the long game, a right? A lot longer than <laughs> we were. Yeah, we've got to play a long game because we're going to be working for longer. We need to pace ourselves. And, you know, burning out early is painful and hard to recover from. We need to think about our working lives as much longer than they were. And We've talked a little bit already about the ageing population and the role that we're going to have to play within that. We're probably going to be working for longer um, than our predecessors. We might even live longer as well. I think we're expected to live to be on... About, are we expected <laughs> to reach 100? I can't remember. <laughs> well, I don't really think the long term, but yeah, no, you're right, no. you're right, yeah. But we're, we're certainly... We'll, we'll live a lot longer than previous generations. I think it's two to three years every generation lives longer, so... Yeah, so we need to pace ourselves. And I think a lot of that can be helped with an appreciation for our well-being and preserving our well-being as best we can while we're doing that and thinking about um, prioritising the aspects of our lives that improve mm. our well-being. So talking about this idea of enjoying your work, finding fulfilment through work, I mean, it's only really something that's happened recently. I mean, in my view, it's a modern phenomenon. You know, before, you know, you go to work, to earn money, you go home and that's it. Like it's, it's, it has one purpose, but it seems like there's this expectation that it brings us more. At which point did it start to change? And what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's, it's always been a passion for some people, you know, Dame Stephanie Shirley, Steve Shirley, as she called herself, who wrote the foreword to the book. She was really the original trailblazer of work style in the 70s. And she describes herself as a workaholic at 90. She loves work. Um, and it's her passion um, as well as her source of income. And I think that, you know, there are always there have always been people who've loved their work, but I think that we are much more recognizing that we need to view our work as part of our life rather than as separate from our lives. So work-life balance is a term that really grates on Alex and I. Yeah. And it's again part of the reason we came up with the word work style, because it shouldn't be that you've got your life over here and you've got your work over here. Like we're all different. We're all individuals. The way we choose to mesh those two things together 
should be completely up to us and it shouldn't matter. And I think that that's where we really fuel that passion and that fire is when you find someone is working on something that they connect with profoundly because it's connected to their purpose, but they can also do it in a way that means that they can be supremely productive and focused on delivering amazing work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the language around work is generally pretty bad. So miserable. Most yeah. <laughs> most of it has originated from organizations. And people aren't creating these words from their own personal point of view. So mm. it's your work life balance, not your life work balance. And that's what is, I think, very clear to see in the way in which the language of work has evolved. Work style flips that and puts the language into the power of into people's hands to say this is this is something that we own and actually we're gonna we're gonna stick to it because we know it's better for us for our well-being for our productivity so do you want to geek out about language we, yeah well i mean language, <laughs> language is huge especially for leaders right yes. think carefully about the words that we use to describe things work itself the word is one of the oldest words in english language i think it was originally a germanic derived from the Germanic word to work. Um, and much of the meaning around work is pretty painful, actually. I think that um, that the original meaning was to, to do something that was onerous. I think the English word for labour derived from a Latin word, uh, laborare, which was, uh, I think, to... Laborare was, I think, to... Uh, plow, plow the fields, plow the fields um, <laughs> with great toil and stress. And then <laughs> Lovely. The French, yeah, the French uh, uh, travail came uh, from, again, a Latin word, um, which was also about um, inflicting pain and suffering. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, In and Russian, so, the word work means slave. I mean... That, Why that didn't is, we speak to you before yeah. we wrote that <laughs> section of the book? Yeah. You should have, yeah. that, that just sums it yeah. up, mm -hmm. right? And it, that's, yeah. that's why a lot yeah. of our associations with work are negative. And in some instances, people, I mean, I used to do this, but would wear that as a badge of honour. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been working really hard this week. Well, that's not... Yeah. What have you delivered? What's your output? So I'm so worried about the language because <laughs> I remember I was going through this, this kind of, you know, conversations in my head talking about autonomy and like overwork and... I just was catching myself on the phone saying, oh, how have you been? I was like, oh, I've been so busy. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I was going to say so that. I've been so busy. Oh, uh, so you know, busy. like my life is just so, there's so much going on. I don't have time for anything. And I was like, why am I saying that to, to me? And mm. I was like, what can I, because I'm just reflecting back what yeah. other people are mm. saying to me. So at some point I started saying, well, you know, my life is really full. But then, yeah. you know, it's, I suppose it's a better yeah. reflection or more positive way of looking at it, but it's still, yeah. you know, that idea like something always has to be going on in my life for it to feel that it's something's happening. And yeah. and busy doesn't equal delivering great output. No. You know, being really busy. And I think children are a really good example of that. You know, I um, before my kids went to school, I would have a day with each of my twin girls once a week. And to start with, when I was with them, I'd go out and I'd be doing stuff and we were busy. But do you know what? They didn't want to be busy. They just wanted to be at home with me. And so then we stopped being busy and we started just, you know, doing jobs at home and pretending to be a cat, that kind of stuff. You know, it's not always about being busy. It's it's about quality time and what you're using that quality time for. Mm. And I think that takes a mental strength to recognise that mm. in a society where currently being busy is seen as... You, like Alex says, almost a badge of honour. Yeah, you say, stamp of approval. Yes, yes. Exactly. you're in. You're in the exactly. in crowd. You're a workaholic. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Talking about the use of language, bias, and the you know when you're talking about the order of things, like you know life work as opposed to work life. What is really interesting is, or tell you tell me, <laughs> why did you decide? the order of the names <laughs> of the authors on the book. Ah, <laughs> so we co-authored the book uh, equally. We agonised over every word. Every sentence word. together, yeah. We wrote yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, there, 
is bias in the literary world. Um, you know, statistically, the book would have been more successful if it had been written by Alex Hurst and Lizzie Penny. And that is just an, it's just absolutely outrageous. But, you know, throughout the process of um, promoting the book, we've seen that happen. You know, the, the, it, the names have been switched and, uh, you know, it's, it's conscious or unconscious bias, but it's out there. And we wanted to make the point through the ordering of the names, but also we wanted to inspire female writers to write books and, you know, fulfill their ambitions because the number of female writers is, is disproportionately low. And it's easy to see why when, you know, you, you witness the, the gender discrimination at play. I mean, from my perspective as well, and I guess maybe this is something that you wanted to happen, but when I saw Lizzie's name, I reached out to you first. Yeah. I yeah. didn't even realise that the book yeah. was co-authored. Mm. Yeah. So mm. yeah. this is the shocking well, realisation. That is good, but you know, it is... When we were a number one Sunday Times bestseller, Alex's name was first. And that has happened to us a few times, as if to substantiate the passage in the book about gender discrimination, you know? Um, and so it was something that we felt strongly about. But also, it's not really my name first. They're on the same level. You know, you've got the book there. We wrote this book together. We could not have been more equal in the writing of the book. But society still has a long way to go. And we talk in the book about excluded groups, but we also talk about discriminated groups, you know, and and there are many forms of discrimination, but gender discrimination is pervasive. It still is. And that's because it's pervasive in the home as well as being pervasive at work. How do you feel when Alex's name is mentioned? I mean, Alex and I kind of come as one, so I don't, like, I'm, I'm not that bothered by it. I know that I wrote this book with Alex. He knows I wrote it, so I'm I'm not as bothered by it. But sometimes I think there are small reminders um, of the patriarchal society that we live in that grate on me. Um, but they also inspire me to do more to drive change. Um, and Alex and I, between us, not together, we have five children. Um, we both have a mixture of boys and girls and... I think it also inspires us in how we bring up our children to go out of our way to try and ensure that they are brought up understanding a need for proper gender equality in society, not tokenism, um, but proper gender equality. And that's one of the many, many things that really fuels our passion for WorkStar. You talk a lot about this huge groups are just excluded for, from the world of work. And when I'm working with clients, HR directors, they come to me and it's like, oh, you know, where can we find an expert on diversity and inclusion and we'd like to learn more? The desire is there. They want to do it. But somehow it's almost like, what are they doing wrong and what can they do to mm. actually make yeah. it happen within the organisation? I think it's really interesting one because I think if the desire was properly there, then what organisations would do is fundamentally restructure to be more diverse. And that is about autonomous working. Because you can make some workplace adjustments for some individuals, but there are a number of groups that we outline in the book who are fundamentally excluded from work by the very structure of traditional working. So, for example, older workers, carers, those with chronic illness, physical disabilities, mental health challenges, people who are neurodiverse and parents, those seven groups are structurally excluded because for whatever reason, they cannot be in an office five days a week, nine to five. And take people who are neurodivergent, for instance, the sensory environment of being in an open plan office just doesn't suit them. And we talk about the gaps that 77% of people with autism want to work, but only 26% do. That is a chasmic gap between those two groups. And a lot of people, I would say, have neurodiversity creeping onto their diversity and inclusion strategies. But what they're doing is making some workplace adjustments for people um, who are neurodiverse, which is simply not enough. If you really want to include people, what you need to do is say, you work in the way that best suits you. 
as an individual. And at that point, you transcend beyond which group are you in and into who are you as an individual. I, for instance, cover a number of those groups. You know, I have an illness. I'm a carer. Um, I also have children. You know, there are a number of elements that mean that there's an intersectionality to those groups as well that needs to be recognised. And this is way beyond what the vast majority of businesses are looking at from a diversity and inclusion strategy perspective. They look at single groups. What are the simple adjustments we can make for those groups? Whereas for us, this is about transformational change, fundamentally change the way you work and you include everyone on their terms and therefore you include every individual. And I think one of the reasons why that happens is because... Diversity and inclusion as a concept has a relatively short history and largely is about um, quotas, looking at mm. how many people, how well represented are different groups, rather than looking at it as an area of competitive advantage. So lots of organisations hire people who look, think, talk and act the same, often from a geographical area that is limited by how close it is to the office. And what you get from that is groupthink in the main. So it's a simplification to say that, but that's broadly what happens. Whereas if you, as Lizzie says, restructure entirely to be an entirely inclusive of individuals based on nothing about what they look like, where they live or anything else, but actually just looking at having a, a, a mix of individuals that is a diverse mix and that, that they have um, different ways of thinking, different experiences. We talk about it as cognitive diversity. Then you can increase the collective intelligence of the group. And this is an emerging science uh, around how smart a group is. Um, and it's kind of the opposite of groupthink, really, which is if you get groups of cognitively diverse people into an environment where they can uh, collaborate and integrate well as a group, you get better solutions, better answers from that group than you do from homogenous ones. So there is a competitive advantage to having a diverse workforce. Organisations just need to understand that. And as Lizzie says, then put the structural change that's necessary in place to enable that cognitive diversity to exist within the business, rather than say surface level um, quotas or, or minor interventions accommodating different needs. It's, mm. it's not enough. What's the biggest obstacle to making work styled the default way of working? Have I we, think have we talked about shifting mindsets? Yeah, I, was just, yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's about mindsets, mm. and I, I think it's it's it only takes one inspired individual in an organisation to create great change, um, and that person it helps if they're in a leadership position because they can create that change more easily, but they don't have to be. You know, we know a number of people who've read the book and said to us, please, can we do this in my organization? I'll introduce you to someone and you can have a conversation with them. And it's gone from there. And I think that's, that's what we need is individuals to use the word, read the book, start to make the case for autonomous working in their organizations. And if we can start to, particularly, as Alex says, this is a source of competitive advantage. You know, there is so there are so many reasons this works. And I've got to say that when we sat down to write the book, we had eight years of anecdotal experience. We had a bit of research behind it. But when we were writing the book, we kept saying to each other, this is the future, you know. <laughs> yeah, every, really good good idea. <laughs> um, every, every bit, micro bit of research ladders up to this being the way we should all be working. So there's a massively compelling case there. Um, if people can just get past that mindset barrier, take the leap. And they, you don't need to move an organisation to being autonomous overnight. In fact, that would be completely the wrong way to do it. It's about running a pilot, testing how it works in your organisation, and then running a slightly bigger pilot and all the time learning. You know, we talk about always improving at Hoxby. We're still learning. We've been doing this for eight years. Um, but for, for organisations, it's about putting a strategy in place, testing it, learning and continuing to evolve that and having a journey, a map to journey their route to autonomous working. And that might take five years. But if organisations don't do that, it will be to the detriment of their success. And their reputation in the long term. Like yeah. we were saying before, now is the time. Post-pandemic, 
people are open to change, asking for change. Organizations are asking, how do we do it? What's the best mm. way forward? We don't know. Well, we do know because we've done the research. We've tested it for eight years. Autonomy is the answer. Work style can help you get there. You just have to have the belief in that and the agency to want to do something about it. Mm. If we don't do anything about it, nothing will change. That's why we're starting a revolution and we're inviting everybody to come and join it because together we can change the world. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Apart from Hoxby, what you're doing at Hoxby, is there anybody else who is doing what you're doing or any organisations that you're thinking, okay, maybe they can make it happen? I mean, I think anyone can make it happen if they want to enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that for us, we started out with this in mind. And I do think that makes it easier that we started from a position of wanting to be the prototype organization for WorkStyle. Um, I mean, it was easier in some ways. It was more difficult in some ways. You know, established organizations have huge change programs. And, you know, whereas we're very much in a positive way, making it up as we go along. Um, but I think that that anyone can do it. It's just that they need to want to and understand the need to. We haven't really come across other organisations doing this. There are often individuals who work this way, who work for themselves, um, or there are pockets of organisations where there's a really progressive leader or line manager who doesn't care where or when you work, they just care about your output. So that we've seen that what we haven't seen is big organizations committing to this being their kind of future way of working the thing that we're seeing and that we're finding most disappointing is a number of organizations talking about hybrid working as though it's the future when it's really the past you know it really is grounded in industrial age thinking hybrid working and i think it's it's the thing that leaders think makes them really progressive when in fact it doesn't and we're hearing that from individuals in organisations. They don't want to be in the office three days a week. That doesn't fit it really does. with their lives. No, it yeah. really, really does. Yeah. It's a yeah. compromise that basically helps neither party yeah. to, to succeed. Everyone ends up unhappy. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, I do see that with organisations where the hybrid working, it's almost, it, it, it is already the past because it's trying to move away from that rather than even incorporate it or take it one step further. It's like, well, we've done that part now. Okay, you know, now that everything is opening up, let's come back into the office. And quite a lot of senior leaders live very close to their offices. So it is more convenient for them to be in the office. And, they may um, also not be the primary carers, you know, often when you get to C-suite. They're not primary carers for young children, for example. Um, it, it goes to empathy and being able to understand. And we've, you know, Hoxby's got some absolutely incredible people. But the thing that we found, particularly in those early years, was that everyone had their own burning platform. Everyone had their own reason mm. for wanting to show it could be done like this. I think that goes back to what we were saying about how you set your work style. It's about placing value on the things you do outside of work. That is true for organisations as well. They have to understand the value of people's lives outside work as well. I think, to your point, Lizzie, we've we've really seen that because of work style, because people have talked about why their work style is a certain way. We have a real appreciation for them as individuals, their lives outside of work. And I think that helps us to, to be better culturally uh, as an organization because we're showing an interest and an appreciation for their life outside of work which mm-hmm. so often we've had to hide you know it's never more clearly manifested than with a virtual background on zoom <laughs> people are hiding where they are because they feel like they have to be something different at work mm-hmm. um and that, you know that's a crying shame at Hawksby. it's not the case we have cameras on and no virtual backgrounds. It's about being authentic, being your authentic self. And that comes back to improving your well-being and ultimately your work. When you're talking about digital first approach, is that there is this completely different way of thinking from the people who are more traditional functions versus ones that are in more kind of like newer functions like tech, for example. So within organizations that are 
using technology to work within a traditional industry, like fashion tech, for example. So you've got the traditional, you know, marketeers or, you know, salespeople, and then you've got, you know, the very nitty gritty engineers, technical people, and how they like to work is completely different. And they are categorically saying, it's like, we do not want to be in the office. And it's like, okay, you know, two days in the office maybe. And they're like, no, like once a month. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's almost like no perception that there is even a need to be in there. And one of the theories is that, well, maybe they're more of an extrovert and that's the reason why they don't want to be in the office and say marketeers or salespeople, they love being around people and it makes sense for them to be there. But what I find is that companies are really struggling to take everybody's needs into consideration and they want to come up with one way against all costs like this just has to be one way that it has to work mm-hmm. and everybody has to fit in with that mm-hmm. and i think from what you're saying is that this is exactly what you're fighting against because that way of thinking that way of working is just not working yeah trying to mandate when and where people work doesn't work but what you can say is we want to enable autonomy mm-hmm. we want to enable everybody to be able to decide for themselves And as Lizzie said before, that's not something that we're going to be able to do tomorrow, but it's a destination. And and as an organisation, you can say to your people, what we're trying to do is get to a place where as a business, everybody here can be free to decide when and where they work for themselves. That's a process, an iterative change process that will take time and will be uh, layered with different challenges depending on the type of work within the business that someone is doing and that's what we're seeing with the consultancy work that we're doing at the moment is it's not about having a one-size-fits-all approach it's about enabling individuality in the best way for the business and that's the challenge that that leaders and organizations have right now i think it's interesting what you said about introversion and extroversion as well because Alex is probably more on the introvert end of the scale and I'm probably more on the extrovert scale. But it doesn't mean I don't absolutely love to be able to just sit on my own work in uninterrupted in flow. Um, and a question that we're commonly asked is, well, if you're all working remotely, you know, Hotspur's got 500 people all working when and where they choose. How do you connect with people? Um and we feel that actually you can connect with people really profoundly, um, even if you're not in the same physical space. And one example that I would give is that I'm going through early menopause because of my breast cancer. And we have a group at Hoxby called Interest Menopause. And I don't think I have ever met, I might have met a couple of people in that group, but the vast majority of that group are people I've never met. They definitely don't live in my time zone or on even the same continent, I would say, many of them. Um, But it has been the most profoundly supportive group through the challenge and the multifaceted challenge of menopause. And so it's not just about connecting with people who just so happen to live in the same postcode as you. It's about connecting with people who have things in common with you wherever they are in the world. And I would say the same about learning as well, that people say, well... Young people have to be in the office to be around other people because that's mm. how you learn is by yeah. being around other people. By osmosis. Yes. But that's not how it works because what if the person sitting next to you who you're learning from has their headphones in and is on a Zoom call all day? You're not actually learning from them. And I think when you're remote and you're working in autonomous ways, you need to consider and purposely connect with people in different ways. You need to go to the water cooler at a time that it suits you or post something in the interest parenting or interest menopause channel or engage with it on, on your terms. And that's not to say that we don't believe in physically being together. We do, but that's not for work. What you do when you're physically together is you connect, you have fun and you build relationships. But to work and to learn, that can be done entirely and should be done um entirely remotely and asynchronously 
one of the most progressive companies that came to the breakfast that I hosted. And what they have found is that the number one thing that you should spend money on when it comes to bringing people together is parties. Yeah. It's the social aspect of yeah. it. It's fun. Yeah. It's enjoyment. It's not actually even work related. You can yes. be physically yes. in the same space, but that is not the same thing as connecting. And Alex said earlier, over half of Brits suffer from loneliness in the workplace. Let's not make the mistake of thinking if you go to sit in the same space, you are connecting. You're not. You're just sitting in the same space. It's a different thing. Mm. I think that's yeah. exactly. And, and the sort of being limited to learning from <clears throat> only the people who can commute to a building mm. with me is probably not very cognitively diverse. No, no. It's, it's scary to think yeah. mm -hmm. that that's what organisations think of as learning, because actually I'd want to learn from everyone else in the world who can't get to that building. Mm -hmm. That's a lot more people with a lot more variety and richness of experience to learn from. Mm. What seems impossible to you now, <laughs> but should you achieve it or change the course of your life or your business? I mean, work style working becoming the norm. I mean, I don't think that seems impossible now, but it feels like it might take a while. So let's say that. I mean, it would change the course of Hoxby, yes, if we can help people to do that. Um, which will mean that in turn we can create more work style work for more people, um, but also it will have an impact on the world. And ultimately, that's what Alex and I want to do is leave our legacy on the world. And maybe our legacy is one more word in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, so perhaps that's something that we can aspire to as well. Yeah, that'd be great. That would be good. What can I do to support you? What can our listeners do to support you? I think... Buy the book and read it. Um, it's on Amazon and in all bookshops. Um, but also use the word work style. Try using it this week and just mm. see how it goes. It, that, could, that alone can help drive the revolution. Definitely. It always feels a bit weird saying a new word for the first time. You feel like an imposter <laughs> because it's not someone a word that anyone said to you before. But the more you say it and the more you think about it, the more it will become the norm. And we've seen that within Hoxby and through the Workstyle Revolution over the last eight years. You know, it, it makes complete sense when you know, we can talk freely about our lifestyle choices. We should be entitled to talk freely about our workstyle choices as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me here on Anatomy of a Leader. What did you discover in this episode? I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments on YouTube or reviews on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, hit that subscribe or follow buttons and I'll see you next week.